Please turn with me in God's Word to Mark chapter 14. This morning we'll be looking at verses 32 to 42 as we continue in our series of cross-centered Christianity, walking through the Gospel of Mark. We now find ourselves in this well-known passage, the Garden of Gethsemane. Hear now God's Word. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to the disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning a third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting enough? The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And now that we've heard your word and we seek to understand it and apply it to our lives, we do pray that you would illuminate our mind and open our heart and ready our will to respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen. $20 billion lost in two days was the headline of uh, Bloomberg reporting on this, this, this piece on the man Bill Huang. The son of a Korean pastor, Wong moved to the United States at the age of 18, and he worked his way up. His first job being a clerk at a laundromat all the way through his education and through his training to Wall Street, where he did exceptionally well. But what's unique about Bill Huang is that he was deeply interested in combining his faith in Jesus with his work. And so he, he sought to, to do this in a, in, a, in a profound way. And in an interview, he says, I try to invest according to the word of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he is known for his Christian philanthropy through the Grace and Mercy Foundation that he founded. In fact, his investment company, Archegos, is named after Jesus Christ, who is called, in the Greek, Archegos. In, for, for instance, Hebrews chapter 2, where he's called the Archegos, or author of our salvation. And his company, Archegos, enjoyed incredible returns and seemed so strong. But something began to turn sour in the beginning of 2021, when two of Archegos's major investments' share prices began to tank. 
It came to light that Archegos was using this mechanism called total return swap agreements with six different banks who didn't know that each other also had these same agreements such that Archegos' assets were leveraged at a ratio of five to one. So it was that when these assets tanked, Archegos sustained unbelievable losses. Like I said, Bloomberg reported $20 billion lost in two days, not to mention the destruction of more than its estimated $100 billion of value in dozens of companies that Archegos was trading. The U.S. government alleges that Archegos, under Huang's direction, engaged in market manipulation, and Huang faces up to 380 years in prison if convicted. My point is that what seemed so strong and valuable and resilient at the first real test faltered. Archegos faltered when the stock market dipped. It reminds me a little bit how we too, when we are tested, sometimes we falter. When I was in high school in our physics class, we had this uh, experiment, this project, where we built bridges out of two, uh, what are they called, popsicle sticks and glue. Many of you have probably done this. And you try to make a bridge engineered such that it can withstand the test. But the thing about these bridges is that before the, the testing began, they all kind of looked okay. I mean, there's a couple outliers that were noticeable exceptions. But for the most part, these bridges looked like they, would, they had integrity. It wasn't until it was put under the hydraulic press and the pressure added up as the, the little meter reading Newtons added up higher and higher that you began to see which ones could pass the test and which ones would crumble. And so too with us. We don't, we don't know how strong we are in the face of a trial until it comes and the heat begins to rise and the pressure begins to grow. So that in our lives, of course, trials do come. Tests will come. Maybe we desire marriage, but we haven't found a partner. And time is going longer. Perhaps our marriage is on the rocks and the home, instead of being a place of peace, is a place of turmoil. Perhaps we have sick children and our sleep is gone and our nerves are high. Perhaps we are enduring chronic pain day by day. Perhaps we're looking at our bank accounts and it's unsettling and we cannot find a job. These tests, these trials will come in our life and often when they come, we can be surprised with the results. We can be surprised with our own weakness. We can be surprised that we falter and fumble and fail. This morning, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you may find that as these trials come into your life that you're surprised that you don't live up to your own standards, your own aspirations of the kind of person you want to be. Likewise, this morning, if you, like me, are a follower of Jesus Christ and you aspire to live up to what God calls you to be and who to be, you may find that as these trials come that you falter, like we'll see the disciples in this passage. But this morning in God's word, there's good news for people who falter and fumble in the face of the test, and that is that Jesus can help us, because he faced a test, and he remained faithful. We see this in, in God's word, specifically look at verse 38, where Jesus, in the midst of his test, of his trial, as well as the disciples, says, the spirit is willing, 
but the flesh is weak. Jesus here is highlighting this reality for his disciples where they aspire to faithfulness to Jesus and to keep watch, and yet the reality is when the test comes, they falter. It's the same idea that Paul in the epistle of Romans picks up in chapter 7, where in this, this lengthy treatment he says, I don't do what I want to do, and what I want to do, I fail to do. And so he ends that passage saying, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? And he finishes that thought with thanks be to God. Looking at Jesus as we will this morning in this passage. Because Jesus gives grace for failures. As well as hope for silence. That's what we'll see this morning in God's word. It's hope for us who falter in the face of the test. That Jesus gives grace for failures, as well as hope for silence. First, let's look how Jesus gives grace for failures. And just to take a step back, look at the context of our passage this morning. Uh, just remember last week, what Pastor Dan preached, that the disciples in Jesus celebrate this Passover festival in Jerusalem as, as God-fearing Jews would do. They would pilgrim, pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate this high holy day. But now, this Passover did not go as the disciples had hoped. They are down from 12 disciples to 11 because Judas has quietly exited to betray Jesus. And just a verse before, Jesus, their teacher, has accused them of being ready to disown him that very night. In verse 31, the, the verse immediately previous to our passage this morning, Peter declares, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples say the same. And so it's with this emotional weight for the disciples and for Jesus that they find themselves journeying to Gethsemane in verse 32. You see, the Passover Seder is a long ceremonial meal, so the sun has set, it is now nighttime, and they walk in darkness. Perhaps if it was a clear night with some illumination from the starry sky. It's not a far walk to Gethsemane from Jerusalem but enough to get away from the stir and the press of the overcrowded city during this festival. And it's here in verse 33 that Jesus asks most of his disciples to stay here. But his inner circle, his, his closest friends, Peter, James, and John, in verse 33, invites to come further with him. And before them opens up a bit of his emotional state Give some expression to, to how he is feeling. He says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And so he asked them to stay here and keep watch. In other words, he's asking his, his three closest disciples, his three closest friends, to, to, to be there with him, be present with him, to pray for him and for themselves as Jesus enters the hardest night of his life. And Peter... James and John will fail Jesus and falter three times. In verse 35, it says that Jesus goes a little farther, which suggests that Jesus probably remained within earshot of these three friends. And then he returns and, and, and calls to, to Peter. He says, Simon, not Peter. Now, Jesus himself renamed Simon or Cephas to Peter, from the Greek Petros, meaning rock. 
Because Peter was to be Jesus' rock, the the reliable one on which the church would be built, but here he calls him Simon. Perhaps because Jesus is not firm like a rock here, but falters. He says, are you sleeping? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? And then again in verse 40, he returns a second time, and because their eyes are heavy, it says, they once again faltered. You know, in the Gospel of Luke, it adds a little more detail here. He describes the the disciples' failure in part due because they were exhausted from sorrow, which I think we can understand, again, the emotional distress that they are under uh, that we just spoke of. But nevertheless, they falter when Jesus needed them. And then finally, in verse 41, Jesus returns for a third time and is exasperated. Are you still sleeping and resting enough? The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. For all of Peter's bluster, he falters at the first real hurdle. You see, falling asleep in Jesus' day was a big deal on the watch. The Greek historian Polybius recounts for us how Romans would punish guards if they were to fall asleep on watch, at least by public shaming and flogging, but it could be as extreme as death. And even in in our modern day, imagine a high-performing manager you might be under. If you were to falter three times on a project, how they would respond to you. At the very least, perhaps a performance improvement plan and maybe manage you out of the company or fire you right then and there. Three chances? But contrast this with Jesus' response to his faltering disciples. I mean, at neither, Jesus neither pretends that their betrayal is no big deal. He, this idea of Christian niceness. No, Jesus is deeply hurt and he communicates that to his disciples. That's the reality. But at the same time, he also encourages them in the midst of this. He shows compassion to them when in verse 37 he says, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He knows that they aspire to faithfulness, but they have in their actions shown themselves unfaithful. He understands this tension because he is like us in every way, yet without sin. And he gives them multiple chances to show themselves, to prove that that they can pass the test. Three times he returns to them and asks them to stay awake each time waking them from slumber that they might have another opportunity. But most of all, despite their three times faltering, Jesus still remains faithful to his unfaithful disciples. By, in verse 42, the the hour has now come, and Jesus will go on to drink the cup the Father has given him and be faithful to go to the cross for these same unfaithful disciples. Jesus gives grace to failures like you and me. You can't hit unsend. You know, many modern applications, there's this wonderful undo button. And we use that and abuse that. And it's a a wonderful invention. But what social media has shown us is that there's, there's no undo button. You can't hit unsend. And such was the case for a young man named William, who heralds from a small town, rural town in Pennsylvania, and William was an exceptional college applicant. 
He played in a professional symphony orchestra. He won awards for economics and physics. He played competitive golf, and his list of achievements goes on and on. And so perhaps it doesn't surprise you that when he applied early decision to Harvard, he was accepted. And not only that, with a financial aid package uh, so great, he would not need to take student loans. The next day, William was invited by Harvard Admissions Office to join the official class of 2021 Facebook group. And he signed on and, and, and loved this opportunity to get to know his future classmates. And, and from here, he was able to join other discussion groups. He joined a math group, an economics and political science group, and then also a group chat on meme culture. Now, many of you are familiar with memes, but also many of you are not. They are these images, sometimes with captions, that often juxtapose unrelated concepts and generate great laughs and humor in doing so. They also have this power of social commentary. I mean, memes telegraph to you and who you're sharing it with that you're kind of part of the same group. You're in on the same laughs. And for William, just trying to meet friends, this had some power, powerful capital for him. You know, it began to get a little immature and just a little wacky, but as time went on, this group chat became increasingly offensive and eventually evolved into a contest of who, who could go further and toe the line or cross the line. And, and Willie wanted to make friends and he wanted to fit in. And so he did something he now deeply regrets, posting a meme joking about sexual assault. Two weeks later, he was contacted by Harvard's admissions committee who had got wind of what was going on in this group chat and now conducted an extensive audit of it. And the result of that process is his admissions was revoked. Because of the nature of social media, of course, everyone found out. His prom date dumped him. His opportunities dwindled. He, he was forced to take a gap year because he'd applied early decision. That was once he got in, he didn't apply to other schools, and so now he was left in the lurch in the following year after his gap year. He applied to 17 schools, and only his safety schools he was accepted because the other schools knew of what had happened. When William faltered, there, there really wasn't forgiveness for him. And that is sort of the, the norm in our society today. There seems to be this dearth, this lack, this scarcity of forgiveness. When you really falter, when you really mess up, how do you atone? How do you become right again? What can you do? If you wanted to make atonement, what, what great act could you do to make things right again? The test for William and the test often for us reveals to us our weakness, and we often falter. And when we're tested, sometimes what happens is a sin pattern which you thought you had had victory over, you may return to. And this results in a feeling of even greater defeat and shame. Maybe you've looked at images or said words or stolen or cheated. And what I want you to hear from God's word this morning is, by his Holy Spirit working in your life to convict you and encourage you and comfort you. May God tap you on the shoulder, as it were, to remind you and, and, and to wake you up, to remind you that there is grace for failures. Jesus shows us that he gives grace to failures in this passage. 
In the beginning of our service, we quoted Romans 3, verses 3 and 4, where Paul says, What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? If we are unfaithful, will God renege on his promises to us? Will he cancel what he's promised us? To which Paul replies in the the most emphatic language available to him, May it never be. Let God be true and every human being a liar. Even if all of us were unfaithful, God will keep his promise to you. Even if all of Jesus' disciples are unfaithful, Jesus remained faithful. And so there is incredible grace on offer by his promise to you when we falter and when we fail. Jesus gives grace for when we falter. But he also gives hope for silence. And that's what we're going to look at now. Verses 33 and 34, we're not going to focus in on Jesus' role in this passage, having mainly focused on the disciples before. In verses 33 and 34, Jesus feels what we feel like when we are tested and tried. He is, in verse 33 began to be deeply distressed and troubled and says he's overwhelmed with sorrow. We see here this unsanitized, unfiltered picture of our Lord Jesus. I mean, with the kind of emotional intensity that we would probably be disturbed to see this state if if any one of us were in this kind of emotional state. I mean, contrast this to what, at least sometimes in my own mind, I can think of Jesus as this kind of stoic figure, almost like a Buddhist monk, emotionally detached from the pain and the suffering and the fears that we all experience. It's far from that, this picture here. He seems like just one of us, feeling the full weight of emotional distress that happens when we are tested and the pressure increases. The mood of Gethsemane was anything but tranquil. Jesus was sweating, his heart pumping, overwhelmed. For here was a man with the weight of the world and heaven and hell on his shoulders. And faced with such distress, how does Jesus respond? Does he seek out comfort food or retreat from his problems by escaping to some form of self-medication or binging entertainment or anxiously planning for every contingency or preparing his speeches for what he will say before Pilate and the Sanhedrin? No. He prays. He goes to his Father in heaven and he prays. In verse 35 it says, going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed. His posture here is one of prostration, lying prone on the ground in in, in this posture indicating one of worship and submission before his God and Father. Not a fist raised at heaven, but prostrate on the ground. And in his prayer, he says this, Abba, Father. Jesus' ordinary practice was to address God as his Father. And extensive studies have been done on, for Jesus, the contemporary Jewish source material. And, and what they've found is no one else prayed this way. This kind of personal address to God as Father would have been shockingly intimate to any of Jesus' contemporaries. And so when he prays, Abba, Father, 
There's nothing childish or juvenile about that word Abba, but it's this indication of respectful intimacy, this shocking intimacy. I'm not bilingual, but I know some of you are. And you resort to your mother tongue when you speak words closest to your heart. Do you not? The gospel writer here, Mark, preserves Jesus' original Aramaic, Abba, which means father, because Jesus is speaking words close to his heart to speak here now in prayer to his father. And so he continues in his prayer, everything is possible for you. You know, earlier in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has outlined several conditions that he encourages his disciples to have met as they come in their own prayers to God their Father. He encourages them not to doubt and to forgive anyone they have anything against before they go to God in prayer. And here, it's worth noting that Jesus does not doubt. He knows that God can do anything that he wishes. And at the same time, Jesus has forgiven anything, anyone who he could have something against. For, for remember with me, in just several hours later after our passage, as the soldiers would drive nails through his hands into the cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Jesus has met all of the necessary conditions for God to answer his prayer, as well as he knows that God is able to answer his prayer. There's nothing preventing God from answering his prayer. And so then Jesus prays his prayer. He asks, take this cup from me. This cup being the cup of God's wrath. The cup was an image used both in the Old Testament and by Jesus himself earlier in the gospel. Where Jesus knows that God is just. God cannot be good and not just. So God is just and therefore there is a punishment for sin. And this wrath of God towards sin and harm to his beloved creation has added up and filled up this cup. And Jesus, as our Savior, sees this cup and knows that in the cross he will have to drink this cup to its dregs. And so here he prays, take this cup from me. Recall with me in the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he's tested by Jesus in the wilderness that one of the temptations that Satan puts before him, he shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth and all their splendor and says to Jesus, all this I will give you if you will only bow down and worship me. In other words, Jesus, you can have all the people you want to save without the cup, without the cross. Just worship me. And Jesus perfectly refused that temptation at the beginning of his ministry, but like temptation for us, it tends to come back. And now, as the hour is upon him, it's come back severely. Could Jesus get the kingdom without the cross, without the cup to drink? And so he continues to pray. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And what's fascinating about this is that Jesus prays his own prayer. The same prayer he taught his disciples to pray and the same prayer he's taught us to pray. There's no special or secret words that Jesus prays. It's the very words that we just prayed at the conclusion of the pastoral prayer. He prays, Our Father in heaven, Abba, Father. Hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Jesus asks that if there is any other way to take this cup from him, but he prays this with the condition that your will be done, just as we prayed, as we prayed the Lord's Prayer. When our desires are not in line with God's purpose, it was Jesus' choice and it's our invitation for our will to give way to God's will. This is true even for the Son of God, as we see in the garden. So to Jesus' prayer, God does not answer his prayer. There's a no or silence. And so in verse 41, we see that the hour now comes for Jesus. And so the cup will follow shortly after. See, what no other person has ever been able to do, Jesus does. He passes the test that Adam, his forefather, failed so long ago, and every other man or woman has failed since Jesus remains faithful under the test, with the full weight of God's wrath pressing down upon him. He holds. It's 2.30 a.m., and I have a packed out day ahead of me. So why am I still awake at this hour? Yet again, my joint pain is getting the best of me and making sleep impossible. Kirsten Riken, a Wheaton grad currently serving in missions training, shares this in an article she wrote. Like some of you, Kirsten suffers from chronic pain. She has multiple chronic illnesses, including a degenerative form of arthritis called ankylosing spondylitis, and so she struggles nightly to fall asleep. She says, I was angry because God had caused a lot of painful things to happen in my life, and I couldn't understand what he was doing. Every plan I had for my future had been whisked away in one blow, and I was desperate for answers that the doctors were unable to give me. And so I laid on the bathroom floor, paralyzed by physical and emotional pain, and I yelled at God. I cried, and I yelled, and I accused him of causing all my pain, and eventually I had nothing left. No tears, nothing more to say, just a broken body on the bathroom floor. Even with silence that God gave her in response to her prayer, asking for God to heal her of this chronic condition, Kirsten did remain faithful to God and leaned into her faith. But for us as well, Jesus gives us hope for silence. When we pray those tear-filled prayers, those ardent prayers before God for healing or for health or for deliverance or for a way forward, and sometimes the way that God answers those prayers is silence or no or not yet. And when those prayers come, a couple things will be of great aid to us, which is that Jesus knows what it's like to have his prayer met with silence or no or not yet. At the same time, Jesus gives hope for silence because you will never have to face the silence that Jesus faced. Though God might not answer your prayer for health or relationship, or healing, or success, God's answer to your prayer of forgiveness and reconciliation is always yes and amen. You see, 
for all the sons and daughters of Adam to be redeemed, we needed a Savior who could stand up under the test, under the trial. And that is precisely what Jesus has begun in the garden and will complete on the cross. That hydraulic press, if you will, pressing down with the full wrath of God given for his just retribution on sin presses down on Jesus and he stays standing and proves himself faithful even when everyone else is shown to falter and fumble. Jesus is faithful. So we can now go to God when we have fumbled and faltered or even when we hear silence with full assurance that God can forgive us. God will forgive us, that God has promised to forgive us and love us. Jesus promises that to all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he has given the right to be called children of God. No matter what you have done, if you come in faith, you can receive God's sure promise for you. So this morning, do you have a faltering faith? Have you fumbled and blew it? Have you been faithful in prayer but received silence? I pray that at the Garden of Gethsemane, you will hear God's word this morning that Jesus gives you forgiveness for your failures as well as hope for the silence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are in all of what you've done for us, that though we are so often unfaithful and faltering in our desire to follow you, yet you, God, have remained faithful to the end. And therefore, we have the sure and precious promise that you will never leave us or forsake us, that you will hold us fast. Even if we let go, you hold on. You are faithful to the end. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.